To stay informed of the latest updates, please follow at Germaniapod on Twitter and Instagram. You can always reach me directly by emailing gdupodcast at gmail.com. Hello. Welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 8, If You Give a Tribe a Subsidy. After Julius Caesar put to rest the Roman fears of the Gauls during his Gallic campaigns of the 50s BC, there were two major events from the Republican era that continued to haunt Rome well into the Imperial era. The military defeat at Cannae at the hands of Hannibal and the Carthaginians in 216 BC, and the Third Servile War of 73 to 71 BC, the slave revolt led by Kirk Douglas. In his biography of Marcus Aurelius, Frank McGlynn makes what I think is a very interesting observation, that the constant fear of German invasion that continued throughout Roman history combined the central fears of both of those events. The potential of a military defeat bringing anarchy, as represented by Hannibal, as well as the toppling of fundamental foundations of society, represented by slave uprisings. After the defeat in the Teutoburg Forest in 9 AD put an end to ambitions of expanding the empire beyond the Rhine, Roman policy towards the German tribes was to keep them divided so they could never present a true threat. While Germanicus's campaigns following the defeat helped redeem Rome's military reputation, the key factor that prevented Arminius from taking more advantage of his surprise victory was his inability to bring Maribotus and the powerful Marcomanni tribe into his coalition. To this end, Rome would support certain tribal leaders over others and provide them with the money and material they needed to defeat their rivals. Tribes with a pro-Roman king were given favorable trading rights and special gifts as proof of their status, and in return the chiefs would support Roman interests in the region, and the nobility was expected to provide young hostages to ensure loyalty. Those children were then educated in a Roman fashion, driving them towards a pro-Roman worldview and ensuring positive relations for the next generation. Frequently, however, those Roman-educated leaders were no longer able to relate to their German subjects, with only Roman support keeping them in power, undermining the democratic legacy of the region. From time to time, these pro-Roman leaders were overthrown and had to flee back to Rome for sanctuary. These refugees then played an important role in ongoing negotiations with the tribes, as there was always the potential for Roman legions to put that king back in power in response to excessive raiding by anti-Roman tribes. Estimates are that, at its height, the Roman defense of the Rhine and Danube frontiers required 200,000 men, including the auxiliaries. Up through the reign of Nero, the Roman focus on Germania was centered along the Rhine River, with their forts and trading posts located near the Black Forest along the Necker River near the modern city of Heidelberg, and along the southern slopes of the Taunus Mountains, near the modern city of Frankfurt. Augustus had stationed eight legions along the Rhine, and by the end of Nero's reign in 69 AD, that number had grown to 14. With the rise of the Flavian dynasty, following the year of the four emperors, Vespasian began to deprioritize the Rhine region in favor of other parts of the empire. The Rhine legions under Vitellius were the ones he was forced to fight in his bid for the throne, 
so he wanted to move those troops farther to the east so they could be closely watched by men loyal to him. Once Domitian's wars along the Danube got started at the end of the first century, only a single legion was left along the Rhine, while nine legions were stationed along the Danube. By the time of Marcus Aurelius, that was up to 12 legions. The Danube frontier was more difficult to defend due to the bend as the river turned to the south. As we discussed last week, there are whirlpools and other rough currents that make sailing from the upper Danube to the lower Danube challenging, making it harder to keep armies supplied. It was easy to justify the expense of stationing soldiers on the Danube, though, based on the mining operations in the bordering provinces. Iron and Noricum, silver and lead in Dalmatia and Pannonia, copper, lead, and silver in Moesia, and then starting in the early 2nd century, gold, silver, iron, and salt from Dacia. Just as Julius Caesar referred to the effeminizing effects of trade on the Gallic tribes closest to Rome, ongoing trade and gifts from Rome made the tribes more and more attracted to a Roman way of life. Access to these goods required tribes to provide auxiliary forces to the legion and to support them by fighting anti-Roman neighbors. Serving well could lead to Roman citizenship, with support from Rome in any future political disputes that might arise within the tribe. Between trade, subsidy, payments, spoils from service in the Roman legions, and the Roman diplomatic strategy of providing favors to certain individuals and groups over others, the communal nature of the old tribes gradually came to be replaced by more of an entrenched nobility, elevated above the others due to their wealth, and more interested in protecting their private property than in the welfare of the group as a whole. In addition to their traditional trade in livestock, fur, and hides, a new element entered the regional economy, especially along the Danube. Trade in amber. High-grade amber was in high demand in Rome for use in jewelry, due to its beauty as well as the relative softness that made it easier to carve and polish compared to other minerals. Additionally, there were many Roman myths about amber that led them to believe it had mystic or medicinal properties. Some said it came from a far-off source, a river in India or a temple in Ethiopia. Some ancient writers described amber as the solidified rays of the sun. Ovid told a story that tied amber to the sun god, Helios or Sol, depending on if we're speaking Greek or Latin. Alright, so quick mythology tangent. Part of the legend of the god Helios was that it was his job to carry the sun across the sky from east to west each day, riding a golden chariot pulled by four white horses. Helios had a lover, an ocean nymph named Clymene, who bore him seven daughters and one son named Phaethon. Because even the children of ancient gods lack empathy, Phaethon's friends would mock him for not having a father around. At the suggestion of his mother, Phaethon traveled east to find proof that Helios was his father. When Phaethon finally reached him, Helios swore on the river Styx to grant him any gift he requested to show that Phaethon was his son. Phaethon requested to drive the chariot of the sun across the sky for one day. Helios knew how difficult managing those four horses could be, and tells Phaethon that not even Zeus can drive the chariot. But when he cannot talk his son out of his request, he was obligated to allow Phaethon to take the chariot out for a spin. As Helios feared, Phaethon is not strong enough to control the horses. When the chariot comes too low to the ground, it's scorched the earth. When it flies too high, 
everyone and everything on the ground freezes. To stop Phaethon from destroying the world, Zeus killed him with a thunderbolt. According to this myth, Amber comes from the tears Clymene and her daughters shed for Phaethon. In ancient times, this story was used to explain the origin of the deserts, and many modern readers see similarities to the tale of Icarus and the ruin that can come from pride. Other interpretations over time have focused on the courage of the young Phaethon. Peter Paul Rubens has a famous painting from 1605, The Fall of Phaethon, and the epitaph he provides reads, quote, Here Phaethon lies, who in the sun god's chariot fared, and though greatly he failed, more greatly he dared, unquote. You can find an image of this picture on my Instagram page. So this is probably as good a time as any to let you know that Germania, divided and united, is now a property of Phaethon Media. Phaethon, grab life by the reins and don't worry about the consequences. Where was I? Oh yeah, amber. The source of most high-grade amber is the Baltic Sea. It came from the resin of trees that would run into the sea and would then wash up on the coast. So transporting the material to Rome required safe access to the Baltic coast and along the Danube River, allowing the Danube tribes to participate in the supply chain, or, more likely, get payoffs not to attack the merchants transporting the goods. You can find a map that highlights the Amber Road on Instagram as well, at GermaniaPod. This increase in wealth led the Germans to import Rome, more Roman luxury items, particularly wine and ceramics. More Roman traders and moneylenders moved into Germania proper, and Roman coins became the standard currency of the region. As this dynamic evolved through the 2nd century AD, an interesting change occurred. The Romans were no longer interested in bringing the territory of Germania into their empire, but now German tribes wanted more freedom to trade with and move freely into the established borders of Rome. It was this conflict that led to more intense fighting during the mid and late 2nd century, after many years of relative peace. So, as discussed, treaty arrangements with Rome typically involved the tribes getting access to trade on more favorable terms than their neighbors, while providing the Romans with auxiliary troops for their army, especially cavalry auxiliaries. As part of the arrangement, the children of prominent members of the tribe would be sent to Rome to be educated before serving in their reserves. So in the short term, these youth served as de facto hostages. In the long term, these children then grew up in Roman culture, and as future leaders in Germania, they were used to the Roman lifestyle and were more predisposed to seeing the Roman view in disputes. Part of becoming more Romanized in this way meant that the elite began to enjoy more displays of conspicuous consumption and to separate themselves from the common tribesmen. They would then also more likely to make decisions for the tribe outside of traditional communal meetings. From the 1st to 2nd century AD, Germania abandoned the more clan-like organization towards a more rigid hierarchy, as seen in Rome. This was not done all at once or without pushback, and German kings never had the same level of authority as a Roman emperor. But the Germanic nobility began to see the benefits of both the Roman comforts and Roman political structure. Previously, all decisions made by the tribes were made jointly as a group and at very local levels for smaller clans. Organization and coordination were only possible in times of war. 
During peacetime, disagreements that didn't turn violent could lead to splintering of the groups. Nothing really made certain decisions or decision-makers more legitimate than others, so there was no reasons to stick together in the event of a disagreement. While the tribes had a strong ethic of supporting one another individually, there was not really a concept of sacrifice for the greater good of the group. It was that independence that had undermined previous charismatic leaders when they tried to unite the tribes against Rome. In that original tribal structure, the only way to elevate yourself above your countrymen was by demonstrating competence in war. However, this presented a few drawbacks if you were a leader. In times of peace, there was no longer reason for anyone to offer any deference to you. And in times of war, a single defeat destroyed all your legitimacy. By accepting the subsidies and gifts from Rome, a leader now had wealth and conspicuous consumption to display their status and then to disperse among their people. Basically, they could now buy off their opposition. This Roman strategy kept the tribes separated from each other and also planted the seeds of class conflict within tribes. If a given tribe refused a pro-Roman ruler, then they lost all the benefits of trading with Rome. And if a particular tribe became too powerful, the Romans could start supporting their adversaries, or supporting new leaders within the tribe. With the conquest of Dacia in the early 2nd century, Rome was now faced with new challenges in dealing with the tribes beyond the Rhine and Danube. First, they now had territory with no natural border to protect it. They had direct connection with Germanic tribes all the way from the Rhine to the Black Sea. As previously noted, Roman border troops were now shifted from the Rhine to the Danube, with military garrisons in Dacia set to block the Carpathian passes into Transylvania. Pannonia now held four legions, three facing the German tribes along the Middle Danube River at Carnuntum, a modern Altenburg, Germany, Vindabona, modern Vienna, and Brigetio, modern Comarum, Hungary, and one facing the Sarmatians to the east at Equinicum, uh, modern Budapest. Moesia held two legions above the Danube Gorge, one at Singedunum, modern Belgrade, to protect the west, and another at Viminicum, modern Kostolak, Serbia, to guard the east. To further import Roman culture to the area, Roman veterans were now settled in new territory along both sides of the Danube, with at least 66 new towns created in the first half of the 2nd century AD. The Marcomanni and Quadi tribes, located between Bohemia and Slovakia, were not happy to see this encroachment, but as clients of Rome, they did not cause much trouble initially. However, now Rome was also dealing more directly with the Sarmatians, a people originating from the Eurasian steppe around the 5th century BC. The Sarmatians, particularly the Izigis on the Hungarian plain and the Roxolani on the Wallachian plain, were more troublesome, even though, or maybe because, the Romans now hemmed them in on three sides. The Sarmatian tribes continued raiding into Roman territory until the Emperor Hadrian submitted to their requests for additional subsidies to keep the peace. The Roman nobility was outraged at the blackmail, and further outraged when Sarmatian chiefs who were rejected by their people came to live in comfortable exile in Rome, while the subsidy payments were restarted with a new chief. Now Hadrian typically ranks high among Roman emperors, 
and part of his success came from his decision to follow Trajan's wars of expansion with a period of retrenchment to keep the borders of the provinces and empire more rational and easy to defend. Hadrian saw that continued expansion would only bring Rome into ongoing wars of occupation for not much gain. Expanding south from Egypt and North Africa took them into the Sahara Desert. Expanding north from Britannia would take them into modern Scotland, while expanding north and east across the Rhine and Danube took them into Germania and onto the Eurasian steppe. Together, those expansions offered warlike tribe with little wealth for extraction. And expanding east would take them right into conflict with the Parthian Empire. While focusing on defending the existing borders, Hadrian also worked to better integrate the provinces into the empire. He began funding more of the provincial administration and works projects out of the imperial treasury. Hadrian spent roughly half of his 21-year reign on tours of the provinces to ensure they were being run according to his wishes, including relocating forts, constructing new theaters, and holding lavish games. These tours brought the entire imperial court and its various hangers-on to the provinces for extended periods of time. With all this influence and resettlement, the provinces couldn't help but become more Romanized. Unfortunately, this had the effect of increasing the divide between the border provinces and the barbarian tribes outside of Rome's reach. This divide then only grew wider during the reign of Antoninus Pius. More roads and forts were constructed in Pannonia, Noricum, and Dacia. Merchants and financiers continued to work beyond the Limes Germanicus, and from archaeological evidence we see the trade across the Danube was strong during this period. Antoninus Pius also settled a dispute among the Quadi and placed a pro-Roman noble as their king, which was momentous enough that it was commemorated in coinage minted between 140 to 144. Now this is the period that Gibbon considered Rome's golden age, and at least part of that conclusion comes from the fact that we have few solid records and evidence of, of major conflicts impacting the empire. However, while the evidence is not particularly detailed, we do see some conflicts against the Germans and Dacians in the 140s AD, and then an extended campaign led by Statius Priscus against the Dacians in 156 to 158. Antoninus also extended the border along the Upper Rhine to Oldenwald Necker. One potential cause of these conflicts was Antoninus Pius' refusal to extend his network of clients in the region that Hadrian had been paying off to maintain peace. Antoninus felt that spending on subsidies was high enough, and while he did not end any of the existing client relationships, nor did he expand the network. One of the few changes made by Antoninus Pius was his decision to start keeping men in office for extended periods of time. Since the founding of the Republic, Romans were distrustful of allowing officials to remain in office for an extended period of time. While exceptions had been made over the years, the tradition was for a man to hold an office for one year until his replacement was elected or appointed. As always, there are pros and cons to any organizational structure, and to Antoninus, the glaring weakness of this was that by the time someone learned how to do his job, he was being replaced by someone who didn't know what they were doing at all. Particularly in the provinces, the locals were constantly dealing with a new administrator who came into the job only really sure of one thing, that this was an opportunity to make himself rich.
So during Antoninus' reign, if a man demonstrated competence in a role, he could stay there for many years at a time. He saw no reason to make a change based on adherence to old rules. So governors began to rule for a longer period of time. They learned the position and the people, and especially on the border provinces, they developed a better working relationship with those tribes. For example, during the mid-2nd century, we see Gaius Julius Severus serving in Germania Inferior from 142 to 150, Claudius Maximus in Pannonia Superior serving from 150 to 158, and Popilius Carus Pito in Germania Superior serving from 152 to 161. But with the Roman Parthian Wars of 161 to 166, most of the top-tier political and military leaders, not to mention the best troops, were needed in the east. With newer and less capable men now ruling along the Rhine and Danube, the Roman influence in Germania suffered, and they did not have the pulse of the relationships between the tribes as they once had. By the time Marcus Aurelius became emperor in 161, the Marcomanni and Quadi were both petitioning for admission into the empire. They wanted to bring down the tariff walls they faced when trading with Rome and have more formal alliances to protect them against their enemies. Tariffs on trade across the Danube could be as much as 25% based on records from other Roman borders. The tribes wanted to eliminate this barrier to improve their access to Roman goods. However, they wanted entrance on their own terms. They would reap the economic and military benefits while maintaining independence politically. They really wanted to be treated as the most favored nations when Rome was dealing with the outside world. And Marcus Aurelius did not trust the Quadi and Marcomanni to become good citizens of the empire, believing that they would instead become a wealth sink that threatened the stability of the entire state. Given the men and resources deployed to the east during the Parthian Wars, though, he did not have the manpower to settle those nations into the empire, even if he had wanted to. In 165, Marcus Aurelius raised two new legions, one stationed in Raetia and the other in Regensburg, indicating that he saw trouble in the region on the horizon. This made ten full legions stationed along the Danube, along with half of the 440 auxiliary units from across the empire. By tradition, Roman emperors only raised new legions when they intended to go to war. It seems likely that Marcus planned to annex the Marcomanni into the empire on his terms rather than theirs. But with the Parthian War still ongoing under the leadership of the co-emperor Lucius Verus, Marcus Aurelius could not take any aggressive steps just yet, and was still deciding how to handle the situation. Unfortunately for him, the tribes were going to make that decision for him when they took their own aggressive actions, starting 15 years of near-constant warfare. The next time, we will start wading into those Marcomannic Wars. <laughs>